So I'll try to go from one to the other. I don't care about smart, smart memory optimization, do I? And I would like to share with you today a <coughs> question we've had in my lab for quite a while, which is about <coughs> why would some individuals exposed to stress, to drugs, to specific life events, would eventually lose control over their behavior and would time after time see the object of the actions, may they be coping strategies, drug use, I guess we all like a glass of wine or whiskey or whatever, or coffee. The object of the actions is progressively escaping them, eventually to lead to a compulsive disorder, such as drug addiction. So I'll try to discuss with you today whether we can apprehend what are the psychological mechanisms and the underlying neural processes, mechanisms in the brain that may account for the fact that sometimes the object of your actions escapes you and that may contribute to paving the way towards the development of compulsive behaviors. So first of all, I'd like to ask you, how many of you, my actually male peers here, tend to do this? Uh, how many of my female colleagues tend to do this? Often, you know, while reading, while being engaged in a intellectual work or just because it is very frustrating to see the time passing by. So we tend to develop many behaviors whose initial purpose is goal-directed. They have a initial purpose, you know, doing this is a way for me to cope with either initial distress, right now I really want to do this because I'm in front of you, <laughs> or it's, it's just a way to deal with time or boredom. Interestingly enough, after a while, we forget why we started doing this and we just do it, right? So it seems that that has lost its purpose. It's lost its value, yet, if one of you were to be engaged in doing this and they feel, you feel scrutinized, you feel that I spotted you, you would stop. And it would cost you not to do it again. You'd be like, ah, why? If that has no value, if that has no purpose, why would that cost you not to do it? And this is exactly the way I would like you to think with me tonight about many compulsive disorders. We tend to think that compulsivity has to do with a inability to control a impulse that is directed, directed towards a goal, but we have come up with the notion that sometimes it's just doing it that matters, not necessarily the goal. And I'll try to discuss with you how doing research in the lab over the last five years, we came up with a model of psychological mechanisms and neural mechanisms that may account for these compulsive disorders, okay? So these goal-directed behaviors, initially, yes, we know they are purposeful, but after a while, if you ask not to do them, you will actually, you experience frustration. 
And that frustration is a massive drive that can sometimes override seemingly negative consequences in the environment. If you really feel frustrated, sometimes you would go to great lengths to get what you want. But the point is, are you sure you're doing what you're doing for what you think you want? That is the question I'm asking you tonight. And I'll, I'll try to demonstrate to you that we've identified mechanisms whereby we are not doing things for the reasons why we do them, or we believe we do them. So <coughs> we can take the first example of drug addiction. And we know that in the natural history of drug addiction, there is a transition from impulsivity, whereby you know the first time you're presented with drugs, you're just like, mm. and one day potentially your inhibitory control just gives way and you try. That's, that's a impulsive behavior. And we know that throughout the natural history of drug use, there is a transition from impulsivity to compulsivity. And compulsivity has a more stress-related flavor attached to it. You are going to do something to make you feel better, but doing it makes the whole environment and your own situation worse. So there's a transition from impulsivity to compulsivity. And my mentor, Barry Everett, and one of his colleagues, Trevor Robbins, in the Department of Psychology in Cambridge, have initially suggested that that transition was paralleled in the exact same natural history from a transition from goal-directed behavior, whereby you do things because you have an explicit representation of the consequences of your actions. You have a representation of your goal. And that drugs influence these mechanisms, such as drug use is initially goal-directed, and it eventually becomes habitual. And we have recently identified a mechanism that we have called incentive habits, which we believe explain how your action escapes you. And I'm going to discuss this notion with you because we believe, and this is just a belief, shared by only a handful of people in the world. So you may well disagree with me, and I'd be very happy to discuss that with you later on. We believe that these mechanisms are necessary for the development of compulsive behaviors. So in terms of brain mechanisms, today we're going to interest ourselves with three main structures in the brain. They are the amygdala, the insula, and the striatum. Interestingly, for those of you who may not be well familiar with the brain, the brain is not a homogeneous structure. It is a very heterogeneous structure. The cortex is hiding many, many specific nuclei underneath it, each one of which has a specific function or several functions. And the cortex itself is subdivided into functional territories. So the brain is a very heterogeneous structure. Among these structures, the amygdala and the insula have been identified to be primary neural substrates for dealing with emotions, reward-related learning, and the generation of impulses. And on the other hand, the striatum, which is one of these subcortical structures, has been identified to be the neural locus of control over instrumental behaviors when you do things in order to achieve goals. May these behaviors be goal-directed, actions, or habits. And we will delve into the notion of goal-directed and habitual behavior 
in, in a couple of minutes. So these are the three, actually the three actors, the three players we're going to discuss uh, about today. And I will try to argue that the object of your action escapes you as soon as there's a aberrant engagement of reward-related mechanisms and the systems that control habits. And that may be triggered by chronic exposure to stress, such as in obsessive-compulsive disorders, or to drugs, for instance, in the case of drug addiction. So <coughs> let's try to dig a little bit more into the example of drug addiction. You may all know that drugs increase dopamine. And you may have heard about dopamine as this hormone or molecule in the brain that actually brings you pleasure. Well, that's wrong, but it doesn't matter. Dopamine is a signal in the brain that helps you learn about what is going to bring you pleasure. So dopamine is a teaching signal in your brain that helps you identify specific stimuli in the environment that predict that there may be something you may like at the vicinity and help you engage in foraging for that specific thing. So dopamine is very important for motivation and to learn about the value of stimuli in the environment. And all drugs increase the concentration of dopamine in the brain, which means that all drugs are going to hijack the teaching signal brought about by dopamine in the brain. And they are going to aberrantly help your brain to ascribe a aberrant motivational value to the drug and the stimuli which predict their availability. This stimuli, the first of which is money. It's very difficult to buy drugs without money. And drug addicts are going to spend great length of time finding money and finding their drugs. So most of the compulsive nature of drug addiction has to do with foraging for the drug. <coughs> and interestingly enough, it's been 60 years that the clinical community and the research community have tried to impinge on drug taking, drug use. But actually, people do crime, they do bad things while they engage in taking, in searching for the drug, not using it. And what we want is to understand what are the mechanisms involved in this aberrant drug-seeking behavior, these anticipatory mechanisms. And <coughs> the structure of the brain whereby dopamine is most increased and the structure of the brain that is a interface between emotions and actions is in the ventral part of the stratum, what on one of these three players I've just mentioned previously, the nux accumbens. And actually it's been demonstrated that we engage in drug use because we are seeking the euphorogenic properties of these drugs or sometimes because we feel depressed or bad and you know, a glass of alcohol makes you feel a bit better. So we start taking drugs in a purposeful manner. It's goal-directed. And it is all related to this increase of dopamine in the ventral part of the stratum that has been perfectly established. But the point is, if that were the reason why we develop addiction, because drugs make you feel good and because they hijack your learning system in the brain, we have all, one way or another, been exposed to drugs. Maybe coffee, tea, alcohol, whatever else. It depends on the cultures as well. 
So we would all eventually be addicted to drugs if it were just about the exposure and the primary effects of these drugs. And when you think about the numbers, if you take 100 potential drug users, I didn't take drugs, so I know there aren't any 100 people here, but if you take 100 people here, and some of them would eventually try drugs. They may be slightly more impulsive. And among them, some would like the drugs they've tried and others wouldn't. So in the natural history of that drug users, actually fewer of these ones would eventually develop drug abuse, such that only 20% overall of all those who would use drugs would eventually develop drug addiction. The point is that these 20% were vulnerable to develop drug addiction even before they tried the drug. Once they've developed the disorder, it's a lifelong disease, like diabetes. It's a psychiatric condition and they have a very high rate of relapse. And what we try to understand in my lab for many, many years, and I like pink very much, is that we'd like to understand who is pink before they start taking drugs or before they're exposed to stress such that we can tailor make preventive strategies and personalized medic medical treatments for those individuals who are vulnerable to these compulsive disorders. So it is very important to keep in mind that we are not all equally vulnerable to these compulsive disorders such as drug addiction. So that's quite important. So the primary mechanisms for which we would take drugs will account for why we've started taking drugs and why we've maintained drug use recursionally, but they cannot account for why only some would develop a compulsive drug use subsequently. And when you think about human studies, clinical studies, they do have limitations because when someone is a drug addict, we know he's a drug addict because he's already developed the disorder. And because they've developed that disorder, there is no way for us researchers to look into what they used to be before they developed the disorder. So there is no way for us to identify how they were prior to developing the disorder. So we cannot address the question of vulnerability. And when you think about vulnerability, for any specific individual, vulnerability stems from many different factors. First, genes. And our genes already carry part of our parents' history. They're actually life trauma and their genetic background itself. And these genes interact with a specific environment to shape personality. And there are specific personalities which have now been identified to be risk factors for the development of compulsive disorder. But again, in clinical studies, because they are clinical studies, the individual has already developed the disorder, so we have no insight into how they were before. And we cannot even contemplate the notion of controlling somebody's life from their conception to the point they develop a disorder in a, what we call in scientific jargon, a parametric controlled experiment. We just can't do this. So <coughs> in my lab and many other labs, we try to translate this human situation into a rat situation. And I would first like to say that all the research carried out in the lab that involves animals is 
is performed in partnership with VETS. All this research has been <coughs> scrutinized by the Ethics and Review Board uh, Committee of the University and it's received ethical approval. And we have, we ensure, and we have to ensure that our animal suffering is minimal. The first reason is ethical. But the second reason is, if you want to perfectly understand what's going on in the brain of our animals, we have to make sure that stress and pain are not contaminating the behavior and the investigation we do. So there's a real ethical purpose to the way we handle our rats, but there's also a scientific purpose. And what is that interesting? Because this fascinating species, and I would like to thank Audrey Rousseau, who made up that slide, this fascinating species, Audrey Rousseau being my wife, and she's the best scientist I work with, but I'm very, I'm very, I'm very objective here. <coughs> Rats come to Earth with a set of genes, and they also, these genes interact with an environment that shapes a specific personality. And rats do have personalities. Some of them are more impulsive than others, more anxious, uh, curious, novelty seekers, sensation seekers. We can actually control and identify specific personality traits in these animals. And eventually, if these animals are exposed to stress or to drugs, only a subset of the populations exposed to these environmental challenges is going to develop behaviors that are reminiscent of the clinical definition of psychiatric conditions in humans. So there, there's a real notion of inter-individual vulnerability in rats that resembles the one we can observe in humans. And this is a fascinating species. <coughs> and they've helped us understand the mechanisms I, I'm going to discuss with you right now. So coming back to the psychological mechanisms that are involved in taking drugs and seeking drugs. As I told you, drugs hijack this teaching signal in your brain, the dopamine system. And through their influence over the amygdala and the insula, which I've mentioned previously, they are going to aberrantly ascribe motivational value to the stimuli associated with them. So in drug addicts, if you were to present drug addicts with images of people taking drugs or the drug paraphernalia or the drug itself, and you place these drug addicts in a scanner, which would enable you to measure the functional activity of brain structures in these drug addicts, these stimuli trigger a profound craving in these individuals. And craving is an intrusive thought, which is an impervious desire for the drug. And under these conditions, when the drug addicts re report they crave the drug, there's a massive activation of parts of your brain, such as the orbitofrontal cortex, but the amygdala and the insula, that is a signature of the emergence of the impulse that is driving this motivation towards the drug. Does that make sense? So we can have a brain signature in humans of the mechanisms related to this craving for the drug. But <coughs> interestingly, this craving is related to the insula and the amygdala. But then, under these conditions, there's something blur in the picture. Because if you're a drug addict and you're in a scanner, like this, it's very noisy, and you're presented with pictures, and you know there's no drug around, so it is very difficult to say that the responses you observe here in humans are a 
causational process towards taking drugs, or whether they are actually what I've referred to previously, the reflection of the inability to forage for the drug when you are presented with stimuli because you are in a scanner. And the experimental paradigms are such that you cannot control for that hypothesis in human studies because you can't really give people cocaine in the hospital. <coughs> and so that comes the notion that people suffering from compulsive disorders, the compulsive nature of the behavior is in doing stuff. And I mentioned to you previously that the stratum is involved in doing stuff, maybe goal-directed or habitual. And I would like to emphasize with you now what a habit is about in the context of drug addiction. So habits, actually habits contribute to 80% of our daily lives. These are processes that require overtraining, but they become very efficient, very effective, very reproducible, and they maximize outcome. And habits are very adaptive, as long as they can be updated in the face of changes in environment. And I have myself experienced such a challenge living in the real world, I have to say. You drive with cars with a driving wheel on the left. That's what life is about. If you look at all the American movies, that's, 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 that's it, right? So when you approach a car and you're the driver, you approach the car from the left. And then you come here. <laughs> ah, you've got to update your habits. Because if you continuously approach the car from the right, it won't be very efficient. So this is exactly how a stimulating environment triggers a response, and you need to update it. If you can't update it, then your behavior may become maladaptive. And it's the exact same story if you enter a room in the dark, the first thing you do is open the door and do this. And if actually it's your home and the lamp has been, the bulb has been broken for two days because you, you didn't have time to do it, nevertheless, you would do this. Which means that you're not going to switch the light on. It means that when it's dark and you enter a room, that's what you do. And that's a habit. And then you disengage your habit go and change the bulb, and everything is fine. So these habits are very adaptive. What's wrong is when they become aberrantly engaged in specific behaviors, despite negative consequences in the environment. And <coughs> in the case of drug use, this is what it would look like. This man has been arrested, and he's been asked to breathe into this breathalyzer that looks like a bottle, and that's the behavior. <laughs> so I have to say that you know, if you're arrested, and the policeman asks you, sir, I'm afraid you may actually be drunk driving. No. Would you mind to breathe? So this is exactly this kind of behavior whereby the stimulus here is the shape of the device. It looks like a bottle. Why do I do with something that looks like a bottle? So this is exactly what habits are about. And you can actually understand them in a broader scale whereby if you're a drug addict, you wake up in the morning and the first thing you think about is uh, I need to get high today. Coming up from your bed in that room triggers that thought. That's a habit. Okay? And <coughs> it's very important to make the distinction between goal-directed behavior and habits. 
And gentlemen, you may be very disappointed, but we are much more prone to habits than, than <coughs> ladies, because if you were ever asked someone, you know, you're way somewhere, and you ask a gentleman, he would tell you, oh, you know, you, you go there, you turn right, you do that, you turn left. And then ladies would tell you, oh, you know, there's, there's the mall over there, and then you've got the Starbucks, and then you've got, you know, the, the shop in which you can buy these bags, it's in between. <laughs> I do not mean to be masochistic here, but that's, that's, that's the difference between the way we process the environment. So they are, they are genetic and, different and clear differences in the way our brains are wired to process habits. And the point is, because habits are less amenable to executive conscious mechanisms, if they are maladaptively engaged, they may easily hijack self-control and willpower and lead to aberrant behaviors. Because their nature, if you, are, if you rely on habits, is to keep your cognitive functions free to do something else. So they are, by essence, less amenable to control. So if they go awry, then things go wrong. <coughs> so how do you measure in rats that notion that the animal is conscious or in other words, as a representation of the goal of, of its actions. You know, this is a very tricky question. It may seem trivial today, but until 1981, the entire scientific the world considered that animals, actually we are animals, so all the other animals, not us, were not capable of having a representation of a goal. They considered that animals only learned stimulus-response associations there's a specific environmental setting, this is the response. And that is perfectly adaptive, that's what a habit is about. And we thought that only humans had this ability to have a representation of long-term goals. Because we can talk about them. And you can try to ask a rat how they feel and what they think, they won't tell you. <coughs> so it's very important if we want to investigate these avenues that we are in a position to be able to understand whether a rat's behavior is predicated on a goal-directed process or a habit. And what's tricky is that in both cases, the rat is going to do an action that is very much the same. So how can we tease them apart? What we do is we, we are going to train a rat to press a lever to receive food, for instance. Okay. So now there are two scenarios. Either the rat has a representation of the fact that pressing that lever is going to give him access to food and it will have a representation of the value of that food. That's the first very complicated scenario. The second scenario, the rat learns that in that box, if they press the lever, they have food. And they actually don't really process the relationship between the lever and the food. It's just the box tells them to press the lever and then they have the outcome. The former would be goal-directed behavior, the latter would be a habit. So we train them to do this, and eventually what we do is we change their representation of the value of their goal. So they are trained and they are to press for that food, and then one day, before they are trained, we give them as much of the food as they want. Ask yourself, don't tell me, if you were to, give to be given your life worth of salary today, would you continue working? 
would you go tomorrow morning at 8? People suffering from compulsive work, like unfortunately me, would, I guess, but not, not necessarily everyone. <coughs> so what we do is we give them as much as they want. So why, if they were responding, because they have a representation of what they're going to have, why would they bother working for it if they have had it for free as much as they want? So we change the value of what they work for. Does it make sense? Or another thing that we can do is once they've worked, we can trigger what is called a condition based aversion. We can make them feel sick and rights and opportunity can't throw up. So if we make them feel sick, they will systematically learn that what they just ate made them feel sick. It's the exact same thing for us. If we, for, for the very first time in our life, we eat seafood and we get ill, we will never eat that seafood ever again. If we've eaten seafood before and we get ill, we benefit from what is called latent inhibition. It's just having eaten seafood for many, many times, we've learned that it's safe. So if on one occasion we feel unsafe, the fact that we've learned for years that it's safe would overcome that inhibitory response. But rats, they would systematically learn this. And unfortunately, when you look at the story of rat killing things, now, they, the, when, when, you put, when you used to put these, these things, these cereals, <coughs> in your house, rats would die straight away. And over the years, what people have done is that they make sure that the rats eat it and actually they die after one day or two so that other rats would smell that food in the mouth of the others and they would go for it and not develop this aversion. So it's, it's a nasty consequence of this. But that's, rats would learn this. So if you make them ill, they would never touch that food again. And once we've done this, then we ask the rats if they would be willing to work for the representation they have of that food. <coughs> so what we do is we place them again in the box under conditions that are called extinction. So in extinction, it means that the rat is placed in the box, they have access to the levers that used to give access to the food, but we don't give them the food. So we impinge on their memory. If the rat stops pressing and is not presented with the food, it tells you, the rat tells you, I'm not going to work for something that made me ill yesterday. Or I'm not going to work for something I just had plenty of right now. So that shows you that they have a representation of what they work for. If they continue in responding, despite having been made ill or having had access as much as they want before, it shows you that actually what is preceding the, the response is not a representation of the outcome. It is that the response is triggered by the environment, the box. So that's a habit. Okay? So we can actually ask rats if their instrumental response is volitional or habitual by measuring their sensitivity to devaluation. So if you devalue the outcome as compared to a non-devalued condition, the rat would decrease their responding. And they tell you, I'm not going to work for something I don't like anymore. And if it's habitual, they will be impervious to this manipulation. What is very important is that then, now they've worked in the absence of the outcome, and now you give them the outcome for free again. Okay, so you ask them, 
you like it, are you gonna eat it? In both conditions, they won't eat it. And this is a very interesting conundrum. Here, they are working for it, but if you give them for free, the outcome, they won't eat it. So they are telling you that actually if they are exposed to it, they are perfectly capable of recognizing it as something they don't want. But their instrumental response is dependent upon a habit system whereby they will persist in responding even though they will be capable of telling you I don't like it if I have it. And that's the reason why we test them in the absence of the goal. Does it make sense? And that is a very important, if it's not clear, please let me know. It's not clear? Not really? So I'll do it again. So is that clear? The fact that if they stop responding, it, it they are telling you I'm not going to work for something I know about and I don't want that. And when it's a habit, because the response is not dependent upon their representation of the goal, they would keep responding for it. But now you give the outcome to them and they eat it. And if the outcome made them ill, they're not going to touch it. Yes? And that is a very interesting distinction between the fact that they would work for it, but not eat it, because the habit has to do with the seeking response, the foraging response, not the consummatory response. So the foraging response is under action, observe, or stimulus response process. It's a goal-directed or a habit, but the consummatory response is something very different. So this distinction between volitional behavior and habit is only related to all these behaviors that precedes the consummatory response, the taking. Does it make sense? So that shows that you can dis dissociate psychologically the mechanisms that support drug foraging, for instance, from those that are engaged in drug taking. And you can well have a drug seeking habit without having a drug taking habit. Does it make sense? I know it's tricky. And I'll try to illustrate it better later on. Devalue the outcome. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right, sir. Yeah, absolutely. <coughs> so what's important here is that we can measure the preparatory responses, which can be mediated by goal-directed, volitional behavior or habits, from the consummatory responses. And it is important to focus on the preparatory responses, everything that precedes the fact that you're gonna use the drug, which is exactly what the big pharma and the community doesn't focus on. What people try to achieve now is if you have your glass in your hand, you want to drink less. What we want to achieve is to make sure that you don't end up with a glass in your hand. It's not the same thing. <coughs> and it is also very important differentiate the fact that habits are not skills. We tend to think, oh, well, you know, a drug addict is not a machine. You know, they are very flexible. They can find their dealer somewhere else. Someone suffering from OCD is not, doesn't show that rigid behavior all the time. But actually the point is, when you think about that rigid behavior, we tend to think about the performance. And habits are these mechanisms that support the initiation of the action and I told you previously that performance, which is the consummate response, for instance, has nothing to do with that. 
to skills is very much about lacing your shoes. If lacing your shoes was a habit for ladies who put boots on in the morning with no laces, you would try to lace your boots. Does it make sense? Because the stimulus would trigger the response. And you never do that. So you are perfectly capable of recruiting skills, such as cycling, in order to reach a goal, which is goal-directed. So performance and the utilization of skills is not the same thing as relying on habit control over behavior. Okay? So in other words, when you think about that, you could well, in the morning, say, I've got to go to the supermarket and I'm going to implement a goal-directed mechanism whereby I have an action outcome process is volitional. And within that overall mechanism, I'm going to implement various skills or action cups to routines in order to achieve my goal. So if you focus on this, you would say, oh, you know, this is clearly a habit. No, it's just the fact that elements of the performance of that <coughs> cognitive schemata which is goal-directed are skillful, or theirs may well be goal-directed. And the other way around, that example of switching on the light when the bulb is broken, that is very much a habit, a stimulus response process. But if the bulb is broken, eventually you're going to implement an action of routine and you're going to change it. So it's not about performance, it's about what is mediating the overall initiation of the behavioral sequence. Yeah? <coughs> so coming back to human studies, what has been fascinating is that in 2006, so it's quite recent actually, in, in the grand scheme of things in science, the heads of the biggest education institute in the world, Nora Volkov, demonstrated that individuals were placed in a scanner and presented with these cues in the environment, reported experiencing craving, and that was related with, you see the yellow spots here? That shows the relative increase in dopamine in the brain. And that is a part of the brain, which is the dorsal part of the striatum, which is the part of the striatum in which dopamine depletion triggers Parkinson's disease. So it's the motor part of the striatum, and it is also the part of the striatum that controls habits. And she showed that actually craving was related to the engagement of dopaminergic mechanisms in the dorsal striatum, which is the motor part of the brain. So they concluded, well, addiction clearly messes things up and craving now has to do with the control of the motor part of the brain. And we have quite challenged that conclusion. And for a junior scientist like me, it's quite of a big thing to challenge the conclusion of a big, big, big scientist like Nora Volkov. <coughs> and we suggested, well, that is not true. It could well be the fact that this increase in dopamine in the habit's brain, the motor part of the stratum, reflects the instantiation of the habit. Stimuli, response. But the fact that you can't express your habit in this environment, then the individual understands that the habit has failed. Switching on the light and is not lighting up. And if they understand the habit has failed, they will eventually crave. So we suggested that this aberrant motivation for the drug in these conditions could be a post-hoc understanding of a failed habit. 
this makes sense? But that is very tricky to demonstrate. So <coughs> we then refer to underlying neural mechanisms and try to figure out whether there were clues in the literature whereby indeed drugs facilitate habits. And if indeed drugs progressively recruit the habit system in the brain, which is the dorsal striatum. And there were very elegant studies in primates. So this is a slice of the brain, it's as if you took my brain and you sliced like this. And this is a slice of the brain <coughs> of a, I think it was a rhesus monkey, showing alterations in metabolism in the brain. So when your neurons do their work, they need a lot of energy. So they take a lot of energy. So if there's a alteration in metabolism, it suggests that there's a, an alteration in the function of the structure. And in, in primates, they show that after three months of cooking exposure, there were alterations in metabolism in the ventral striatum, where drugs exert their reinforcing properties. They increase the pain primarily. Well, at least this we knew. But after three years, as you can see, these alterations, the blue has spread to these wings here, like it were a butterfly to these wings here. And actually, this is the habit part of the brain. So just taking drugs in these individuals impinges on the function of the brain such that the alterations progressively spread from the motivational system to the habit system. So that has been shown in terms of functional recruitment. But since these mechanisms are mediated by dopamine, the same group actually showed it's a different way of presenting it, but it's the same thing. That after initial drug exposure, there are very few alterations to the receptors in the brain to this hormone dopamine. So every single hormone in the brain, neurotransmitter, is exerting its function by binding to specific receptors, which carry the information subsequently. And it's been shown that after chronic and long-term exposure, this ring here is that one, there is a decrease in these dopamine receptors in the brain, in the striatum. So not only are there any functional alterations that spread to the habit brain, but there are also specific dopamine-related alterations, which reflect that pharmacologically, drugs are capable of changing your brain and eventually recruit your habit system. And clearly, you have no understanding of it, right? <coughs> and elegantly, Laura Corbett and Patricia Janak have shown in 2012 that actually alcohol does the exact same thing as I've just shown you the cocaine. But on top of it, they demonstrated the psychological mechanisms that paralleled these alterations in brain function. So what they did is they trained rats to liver press for either alcohol or sucrose. And rats, they have a sweet tooth, so they like sucrose. So they would work for both. And eventually what they did was they tested if the rats were working for alcohol and sucrose because they had a representation of their value or if it was a habit. So after two weeks or eight weeks, for both alcohol and sucrose, what they did is they gave the rats as much of that outcome as they wanted before they tested them under extinction, as I've just previously told you. And as you can see, after two weeks, when alcohol is devalued and when sucrose is devalued, the rats decrease their response, which suggests that their behavior is goal-directed. However, 
after eight weeks, while sucrose seeking behavior is still sensitive to this devaluation, is still goal directed, with the exact same amount of training, the exact same history, alcohol seeking is now impervious to devaluation. It has become habitual. And that was the first very well controlled evidence that drugs such as alcohol facilitate the development of habits as compared to non-drugs addictive stimuli such as sucrose. So drugs have something inherently facilitating habit formation. And they showed subsequently that th that was different from the dose of Australia. But <coughs> in the lab, Chiara Giuliano, who's here tonight, has been testing this hypothesis that indeed alcohol-seeking behavior may well develop habitual, uh, may well become habitual, but she further tested the hypothesis as to whether these drug-seeking habits could predict the development of compulsivity. I think my daughter likes that. <laughs> so what she did is that she trained rats to press levers. It's a complicated task, and I won't bother you with the sophistication of the task. Literally, she had rats pressing levers in order to get access to a bottle of alcohol, okay? So you work to go to the bar, and then, you know, you ask for alcohol, and you drink it. And she measured the sensitivity of this alcohol-seeking behavior to a direct interference with the habit brain. So she, before this session, what she did is that she injected into this rat's striatum, into this rat's habit brain, a drug that blocks the receptor to dopamine. So she prevented dopamine from recruiting the structure. And if that manipulation decreases responding, it shows that this alcohol-seeking behavior is indeed dependent on the habit brain. Does it make sense? If it stops, if the same manipulation stops influencing the behavior, it shows that the habit brain has been disengaged and the behavior is hence goal-directed. And she made a very elegant hypothesis that was, since there are major inter-individual differences, potentially the extent to which you rely on your habit brain may predict the inability to disengage your habit in the face of negative consequences in the environment. Does it make sense? So the rigidity of your habits may potentially be predictive of the vulnerability to compulsivity. Okay? In a rat. So at the end, I think perhaps 80% of you will be like, oh yeah, he makes nice story out of rats pressing levers. But yes, indeed. So in a rat. So she tested this hypothesis. So what she did was, she in, this is again, slices of the brain. That is an illustration of where in the brain she infused this drug. And there are no pain receptors in the brain. So that is a procedure that doesn't actually induce any pain to the animal. And, <coughs> and she identified subsequently, so I've, I've got to tell you the story the other way around. At the end of the experiment, she exposed rats to a condition in which they had to choose between going for alcohol and taking the risk of potentially receiving mild electric shocks or not responding. So if they persisted in responding at that time, 
despite the risk, obviously mild epileptic shocks, we call it compulsive because they would actually maintain their behavior despite negative consequences. And that is the definition of compulsive drug use in humans. So at the end of the experiment, she identified rats that could persist in responding despite punishment and rats that would be like, no way. If alcohol comes for free, that's good. If it comes at a cost, I'm not doing it. And some rats that were just intermediate. So <coughs> here you've got this cluster of animals as being compulsive, intermediate, and non-compulsive. But for now, it doesn't really matter because after a short training, this is the number of seeking responses, of cycles of responses. We can see that if we, if we infuse increasing concentrations of that drug that block the dopamine receptors in the brain, it has no effect on responding. So at that stage, we know actually, and we only controlled and verified that alcohol seeking behavior hasn't engaged the habit brain because it's goal directed. Okay? However, after long-term training, and these are heroic experiments, they take months and months, and actually that experiment and the previous one took almost more than a year to complete. After long-term training, as you may observe here, the size of these bars, the eight of these bars here, is quite smaller than here. So this is the control condition in which we infuse the vehicle of the drug in the brain, so it should have no effect. So this is the performance of these animals under normal conditions. And when you block the dopamine receptors in the habit brain, you can see that there's a decrease in responding, which shows that under these conditions at that stage, at the population level, these rats have engaged the habit brain and their alcohol-seeking behavior has therefore become habitual. Does it make sense? The beauty is that now, Chiara, for each one of these rats, computed the effect size of the blockade, the extent to which blocking the receptors decreased the responses. Does it make sense? So that was a good proxy for measuring the reliance on the habit brain. The more you decrease, the more the animal relied on the habit brain, okay? And since we were interested in inter-individual differences here, she could identify rats whose sensitivity to that manipulation was actually much higher than others who were absolutely impervious to that manipulation, which is very important because it shows you that every single rat is not the same as the other. And it shows you that after the exact same story, some rats, indeed, do rely heavily on their habit brain. Their behavior has become habitual. But others haven't yet and may never. And that actually reflects the disparities among human populations. But the beauty of that approach is that then, once these animals were challenged to make that choice between continuing to respond to have alcohol and having punishment, those who responded the most, those who were the more compulsive, were those whose reliance on the habit brain was the more pronounced beforehand. So that figure here shows the magnitude of drug-seeking cycles completed despite punishment, and you can see that the yellow here is much, much higher than the green here. And we come back here, the green ones were those who were impervious to the blockade of dopamine receptors in the habit brain. 
these animals were goal-directed at that stage, and when they are challenged with a change in the consequences of their actions in the environment, the negative consequence, they are perfectly capable of stopping taking alcohol or seeking alcohol. Those whose behavior relied heavily on their habit brain were not capable of disengaging and persisted in responding despite punishment. They had developed compulsivity. Does that make sense? So <coughs> in the five, I shouldn't tell you this, but I should be stopping now and we could have questions, but since there's no one after us, <laughs> if you wanted, I could continue for five minutes and then we could have questions later on, but I don't want anyone to feel that they are being imprisoned here. So tell me what you'd like to do. Should we stop now? Or Carry on, five minutes. So <coughs> the conclusion of this series of experiments is that indeed drug seeking, I've given you an example for alcohol and for cocaine, is initially goal directed. We take drugs because we have a representation of what they give to us. But eventually drug seeking behavior becomes habitual and controlled by the dorsal striatum. But it still doesn't tell us why it escapes those animals who still rely on it very much. And when you think about drug addicts, people suffering from a drug addiction are not necessarily locked into a rigid pattern. As I told you previously, they are capable of showing goal-directedness, surprisingly so. And we really want in the lab to understand how a drug addict can show goal-directedness when we know it's been demonstrated at the neural level, at the cellular level, at the psychological level, that their behavior is habitual. This just doesn't add up. And we try to understand this. And <coughs> we've come to the conclusion that actually, all these experiments I've shown you are very artificial. They, we were interested here in the psychological and neural mechanisms supporting the instrumental performance, this drug-seeking behavior. But do you think in the real life, drug addicts would do stuff in the absence of motivational cues in the environment? That's not true. Drug addicts are going to forage for their drug, and this behavior is going to be reinforced, invigorated, encouraged by cues in the environment that remind them of the drug. And we haven't taken this into consideration so far. And <coughs> we have identified a mechanism whereby the motivational processes which originate in the amygdala and the insula, as I introduced initially, permeate aberrantly the habit brain, such that eventually the response itself, the habitual response, is imbued with motivational values, such that if you are prevented from doing it, the value of that response emerges. And then you want to find a solution to do the response because the response can become a goal. And that is quite particularly interesting in the context of Tourette's syndrome. Individuals suffering from Tourette's syndrome, they show these impulses to express their tics and these simple or sophisticated talks. But interestingly, it's quite difficult to 
offer a diagnostic because many of these individuals are perfectly capable of delaying the behavioral manifestations of their interface. And one of our colleagues clinicians told us that actually some of their patients, before they go to the GP, they go to the bathroom and they do blah, 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 whatever they have to do. Then for 20 minutes, they can perfectly interact with the GP. They leave blah, 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 blah. And we've carried out a couple of experiments whereby we asked these individuals, especially one young child of 12 year old who would actually imitate a parrot all the time. So he was, I can't do this because I don't have the same voice. I wish I had a 12 year old voice. Can't do this, but he was imitating a parrot like 24 hours per day almost. And if you were to ask him, you know, can you stop for a minute? He would stop for a minute. And when you say time's up, what happened? He would actually do it as if he had been accumulating what he just didn't do during that minute. Yes? And that led us to challenge the view that Tourette syndrome, there is a ability to control these impulses. The view we have is that there is a ability to control the time at which the impulse is going to trigger a behavioral response. But if the impulse is generated, eventually the behavioral response has to come out. So there's no control. There's postponing. So they are still not capable of actually just deciding, oh, no, that's it. And we've <coughs> identified these mechanisms, which we call incentive habits, whereby if individuals do these habits I just showed you, in conditions in which each one, their each, each one of their responses results in the presentation of cues which trigger craving in the environment, there is a aberrant understanding that the response has the value of these cues, such that, as I told you, drugs hijack the dopamine system, so they hijack the teaching system. These cues are imbued with a very high and aberrant motivation, and they are permeating the response. And in the habit conditions, the response, as we discussed, is divorced from the representation of the outcome. Why? But under these conditions, the response still is divorced from the representation of the outcome, but acquires the value of the stimuli in the environment, the condition cues. Such that, if you prevent the response, the individuals can disengage the habit brain to engage a goal-directed volitional system, the goal of which is to respond. But they have no insight into this process. And if you do something, you want to understand that there's a goal. So if I do something, there must be a goal. So they tell you, yeah, I want the drug. But actually what they want is to do it. Not necessarily to have the drug. So I'm going to skip, I guess, 200 slides. And I would like to go straight to an important conclusion, which is we believe that through these mechanisms I've tried to investigate with you tonight, we start having an understanding of how does the object of your action escapes you, sorry, escape you, is because very likely through this notion of incentive habits, whereby the amygdala and the insula are capable of permeating the habit brain, 
doing it can become more important than having it. And I would like to thank all the collaborators who've contributed to this, to this work. <coughs> Sarah Giuliano is in this room. Aude Bonarossan is here as well. Maxime Prissac and Michael Pro are here as well. As well as Yolanda Pena-Olivers and all my other collaborators. And I'd like to thank my mentor, Barry Rizit, and thank you for your attention. Those of you who really want to escape now, it's time. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm happy to take any questions. Yes, sir. I understand the faculty here at OCD. Yes. Um, so how would your research help them? I mean, because he, he takes drugs and surgery for yep. controlling OCD. Uh, I mean, uh, when I was listening to your presence, I might never understand you, but as long as somehow it um, or what's happening, how is it affecting him? Yeah. Because so he's, he's, when it happens, he's sort of destroyed by it, and it takes Absolutely. hours of his day. And Absolutely. He, and he sort of can't control it. No. Um, but it, when you were saying a bit about motivation, because my sister said to him, well, if he wants to do something, he doesn't. You know, if, if it's something that he wants, because they'll suppress his OCD, but when he's sort of being relaxed at home, then he almost indulges it. So they've said to me, well, you know, surely you can control it. That's, that is a very good question. very much like what you were talking about, that, you know, this bit about delaying the Absolutely. reaction. So again, it's, it's always very difficult to ascribe a mechanism what to, ah, sorry, sir, yeah. So we were discussing about obsessive compulsive disorder. And some individuals who suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder would have their obsessions and compulsions taking hours of their lives. For some, some individuals, it would take them 12 hours to get ready in the morning. And then it would take them six hours to get ready in the evening to go to bed so that they is gone. But some of these individuals, actually, if there's something they really want, it can kind of overshadow the obsessions and they can disengage from the obsessive compulsive rituals in order to engage in these specific behaviors they really want to achieve. And the question of, of this gentleman was, how does that work? And uh, is it the case that they can really control their obsessions? Or is it, is it the case that they would postpone the behavioral manifestations of these obsessions as, as we've discussed today? And this is a fascinating question. OCD is, I believe, a much more complicated disorder in terms of mechanisms to apprehend as compared to drugs, even though both I, I apologize, I shouldn't say it's fascinating. But from a scientific point of view, it is fascinating. And it does, it does actually destroy the life of those who suffer from them. But in obsessive compulsive disorder, there are several mechanisms at stake. We've mentioned the notion of impulse. And interestingly, the entire field, and actually the society overall, always considers that what is wrong with impulse control disorders, such as impulsive behaviors or compulsive behaviors, OCD being a prototype, is the control. So we always talk about control because it's easy to say, well, he's an addict, it's his fault, he was weak. That's what we do. And we shouldn't be doing this because we should recognize that this is a psychiatric condition. 
And <coughs> the notion of willpower then begs the question of the impulse itself. And we've been working on the amygdala and the insula, trying to understand, well, there's the notion of control, there's the notion of the habit, and postponing the behavioral manifestations of that impulse. What about the impulse? Because in OCD, there are, there are various clinical facets to obsessive compulsive disorders. You may have heard that some people would actually wash their hands excessively. Others would have obsessions about contamination. There are many, many facets. Interestingly enough, it is well recognized that the reasons why individuals suffering from OCD tell you they do their, their compulsions are not those from which they inherited the compulsion. So there's a notion of misattribution. There's a notion of agency. They are not capable of recognizing the stimuli, internal or external stimuli, that have been those who initially contributed to developing the compulsions. And we've been asking the question the other way around. <coughs> when you are experiencing joy, when you look at the person you love, I'm French, I've got to be a romantic. <coughs> and look at my wife. You've got butterflies in your belly, right? You really do experience a visceral emotion. But when you have to have a dinner with someone you hate, or go to a meeting you really don't want to go to, and listen to that guy with that French accent perhaps, you have something in your belly that is not a butterfly. <laughs> And while the former tells you to go and do something to your wife or your partner or whatever, the latter tells you to do something else. So the question is, is it the same process? Do we have different mechanisms in our belly that we recognize if, we are, if the impulse is appetitive or aversive? Or do we have a mechanism in the brain that is capable of mapping your internal affective state with your visceral information so that to tell you you should like it or you should dislike it. And believe it or not, this is something we learn during infancy. Many children, when they're very happy, they would laugh and eventually start crying. Uh, when they're very sad, they would start actually laughing because they need to learn the value of these internal cues that have to do with emotions. And Osborne-Arosson here developed a model and she, she published elegant studies testing the fact that it could be the case that if you are not capable of understanding these impulses, if you want to kiss the guy you hate, <laughs> right? <coughs> There's something wrong. Your emotional filter to the world is impaired and what is underlying the pathophysiology of OCD? There's something wrong. There's this preoccupation that there's something wrong and I've got to do something about it. So my compulsions are here to prevent this dreaded situation, something's wrong. And we suggest that among other mechanisms, there is a inability in compulsive disorders to fully understand your gut feeling. And if your emotional filter to the world is impaired, how can you expect people to control it? So in that context, if really there is something that the individual has a deep motivational process for, that could actually be the tip of the iceberg 
that could just be there so that they feel it's a butterfly and they can go for it for a while. And after arbitration, it's not here anymore. So you could have mechanisms that may account for the fact that the compulsions become ingrained as habits because also they are predicated on the obsessions. And in, if you consider the response, the habitual response being the compulsion, the stimulus that triggers that response could well be the idea and it's a vicious cycle. But if you can, for some reason, impinge on that process, because potentially you may recruit this emotional drive, that could account for it. Thank you for the question. Yes. So more to like the question that the guy previously just asked. Um, how do you feel about mindfulness, like ah, meditation? That is a very beautiful question. That, that, that's not prepared, but actually the second part of my talk was almost all about this, or reasons why this is important. We've discussed the notion of control, and we've discussed the fact that impulses could permeate the habit brain. We have to un understand and accept that we are not necessarily aware of all our impulses. And clearly habits, we are not aware of them. If we were aware of them, I wouldn't be able to talk to you right now because I would have to think that I'm manipulating this very much because I'm stressed. So <coughs> we're not aware of these mechanisms, right? So when people start talking about helping those who suffer from impulse control deficits, they always think about restoring volitional top-down control of their being impulse. So it's all about your prefrontal cortex, CBT, actually, <coughs> or cognitive behavioral therapies are very effective in some individuals and they aim to actually help you control either the idea or the behavior. But now, if your prefrontal cortex doesn't see the impulse, because the impulse is directly linked to the habit brain, that mechanism doesn't go through the prefrontal cortex. How can we expect having your prefrontal cortex doing push-ups to exert better control over the impulse or its ab ability to trigger behavior? You can't do this. The only way you can have some individuals who do not respond well to CBT would be to suggest mindfulness first, whereby they would expand the ability to recognize the impulse. And if you can expand and help them better hear their feelings and identify the impulse, then you can equip them to better control the impulse. So I believe the future of the, the, the cognitive treatments and, and psychological treatments in compulsive disorders will be a combination of the good pharmacotherapy. You need to help the brain be more plastic. If you think of this data I showed you about Carol Giuliano's rigidity of the habit brain, if you can't disengage your habit brain, drugs, appropriate drugs may help the brain to be more flexible, more amenable to mindfulness and then CBT. So I believe, and this is actually a way, it's become more common to, to combine mindfulness and CBT in these specific conditions. That's a very good question. Thank you.